Well, as we pick up in Genesis 46, if you remember last time, um, Joseph has just revealed himself uh, officially to his brothers. We saw as we came to the close of the 45th chapter. In fact, almost to sort of just uh, reacquaint ourselves since it's been a week or two here since we've kind of picked up in our study in Genesis. If you look back with me in chapter 45, uh, there in verse 4, this almost sort of refreshes our memories as we kind of sort of came to a climactic point with Joseph and his brothers revealing himself to them uh, in the position he's now in now as sort of the governor, the prime minister of Egypt. It's been 22 years. They thought that he wasn't even alive. And now discovering that not only is he alive, but he's actually in this incredibly powerful position uh, that they've just discovered. It tells us chapter 45, verse 4. I'll just read these verses to refresh our memory. That Joseph said to his brothers, please come near to me. So they came near and it says, then he said to them, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But do not therefore, he said, be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years, the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. So as Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, attached with that, as we saw last time, is this incredible perspective that Joseph was able to, uh, you could say, retain or, or develop. Uh, I'm sure it was not through many years, however, uh, of uh, you know escaping heartache and questions, no doubt, as we look at what Joseph went through, through the process, as he said right at the beginning, of being sold by his brothers into Egypt. Uh, that Joseph did not certainly uh, go throughout that process without times of questioning and wondering, probably going through all the range of thoughts and emotions that maybe we do at times as we deal with unfortunate circumstances and and heartaches and disappointments and difficulties and hardships. Joseph had his fair share of that and his fair share of that as a man really who sincerely walked faithfully with God. You know, when you look at Joseph's life, he really has a stellar character in the Word of God. I mean, we look at the lives of like Jacob uh, and Abraham and David and Solomon, others who were men of God, who were lovers of the Lord. And yet the Bible holds before us very clearly the flaws in their life, the mistakes they made, things that they did. When you look at Joseph's life, uh, I'm not saying that he was a man without sin, because we know that's not true of anyone, but the Bible really doesn't hold before us as it does with like David and Bathsheba or Abraham and the whole mistake with, you know, the episode with Hagar and Ishmael or, uh, you know, others like that. You know, Moses even who murdered someone on one point in his life. The Bible doesn't really set before us any grievous faults or mistakes in the life of Joseph. So here's a man who loved the Lord. He seemed to really walk straight and narrow despite many of the difficult, painful things he went through. There's no sense of, of a, a, you know, a, a bitterness and angry turning against God. I'm, I'm sure he wrestled with things, but he continued to trust the Lord through those things, to stay faithful to the Lord, to continue to walk out his relationship with God. 
Uh, and through that process, as he walked through that, he had come to this point where at the 22-year point now, finally revealing himself to his brothers, he was able, having seen all that transpired, to be able to put the pieces together by faith, and I emphasize, it has to have been by faith, to be able to see how God superintended even over the misfortunes, the wrong things that were done to him, the unrighteous things, the hurtful things his family did to him, the mistreatments that he went through, the disappointments, and to say, you know what? Yes, you sold me here. Yes, you did what you did. He'll later say in the 50th chapter, but what you intended for evil, God used for good. And he was able to see how God was able to superintend. Here you read his words again as we studied last time where he says, look, don't be angry with yourselves. I'm not embittered towards you. Honestly, I see now it really wasn't even you who sent me here. God used what you did to me, but it was ultimately God who was sending me here to put me in the place where he was so that I would be in the position I am now as the, the ruler second in command to all Egypt so that I could actually be in a place to spare our entire family line and really to spare the line of Israel and more than that, to actually spare the line of the Messiah, to keep alive the messianic line so that ultimately the Savior could come into the world uh, through the, the line of Israel. So again, just incredible you know, maturity, incredible wisdom, uh, an incredible ability to have the faith to be able to step back and say multiple times, it was God who sent me before you. It was not you, verse 8, who sent me here, but God. God actually did this. And, you know, what an incredible measure of maturity it is in our lives that we can process the painful things that happen to us, the mistreatments that we all go through, the misfortunes, you know, the difficulties, the times when, when we are completely innocent and we're even victimized and to say, but you know what? Ultimately, I still see how none of that hindered what God ultimately wanted to do in my life. God took care of me. He helped me through it. And he still brought me to exactly where he wanted me to be. And he used all of those painful, toxic things to actually have me in the place where I'm supposed to be with a heart that was right before him and ready to experience what he has in store. And you know, that, that's incredible encouragement to be able to look at your life from that perspective and to realize, despite what you've gone through and what has transpired in your life, that God still used it. And God is superintended and God can still use it and will ultimately put you uh, in the right place where you're supposed to be in your life and will use it as an asset to your relationship with him ultimately in your life so his instruction verse 9 hurry go up to my father he says you now that you know i'm alive go back tell my father chapter 45 verse 9 thus says your son joseph god's made me lord over egypt come down to me do not tarry you shall dwell in the land of goshen and be near to me come back stay with me there's five years of this famine left you and your children and children's children your flocks your herds all that you have and there I will provide for you lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty for there are still five years of famine. So he then sends them back to Canaan with word of this incredible revelation. Not only is Joseph alive, but Joseph is second in command to only Pharaoh in the entire empire of Egypt and is able to provide and sustain for the family. He says, go tell my father, get him, bring the entire family, 
back here that you might dwell in Goshen and I can provide for you through the next five years of the famine. So they returned back, brought word to their father. We saw at the end of the chapter telling him, chapter 45, verse 26, Jacob was told, Joseph is still alive and, not only is he still alive, guess what, Pops? He's not just alive in a dungeon somewhere. Your son, who you thought's been dead for 22 years, is alive and he is governor over all the land of Egypt, the one in charge of all the grain in the midst of this famine. And Jacob's heart stood still because he didn't believe them at first, but when they told him all the words which Joseph said, which we just read together, and all the carts which Joseph had sent to carry the family back, the spirit of Jacob their father revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is alive. I will go and see him before I die. So chapter 46 picks up now, telling us, So Israel, which remember is an interchangeable name the Bible uses for Jacob. Remember, God changed his name to Israel, which means literally prince of God or one governed by God, the implication is. Uh, he says, So Israel, or Jacob, took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac and there God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said to him Jacob Jacob and he said here I am and he said to him I am God the God of your father do not fear to go down to Egypt for I will make of you a great nation there and I will go down with you to Egypt and I will surely bring you up again and Joseph will put his hand on your eyes so at this point, the journey now begins, and you can imagine the incredible excitement, all the anticipation. You know, Jacob has just got this news. However, it is a, an extensive journey. Again, it's not like he could just hop on a plane, a few hours, you know, get to the other, uh, you know, side of a long couple hundred miles, or take a quick Amtrak. You're talking about a. a, a slow progressive journey a caravan of people we know about 70 or so people plus flocks and herds and so forth and all their property uh, making a family transition this is a huge transition of an entire clan of people and it tells us in verse 1 that as they begin this journey with all that he had so he packs up literally everything and again, he's 130 years old at this point, been dwelling in Canaan. Now, if any of you ever moved before, you know what it's like to move. When you've been sitting somewhere for about 130 years, uh, you know that's a couple ur halls, if you know what I'm saying, to, to move from where you're at to try and get uh, to where he's going to go. I mean, this is an extensive... And when you get older, you tend to get more settled in. You know, The longer that you go, the more the idea of moving and transitioning just seems absolutely... Like you have got to be kidding me. The last thing I want to do is transition and start all over again. Not only just the effort of it, but the fear of that. You know, the, we, we tend to like security and, and we tend to get comfortable in our environment and we know where this is and the, the, we know the people in the area and the convenience stores. And, and there's something about uprooting and starting all over again that really is, it's a very unnerving thing that when you get settled and you, you feel safe in a settled situation. Uh, it's scary to start all over again. He's about to leave where he's at and go to a completely different country. To go to an entire other nation is, is what he's pursuing at this point. And notice that as he's on his journey, it says he came to the area of Beersheba. Now, Beersheba 
is basically the southernmost point uh, in the land of Canaan. So the idea is this is kind of the last stop before he leaves Canaan and enters into Egypt. Now, Beersheba also was a place that was significant because it's where Abraham, his uh, grandfather, had dwelt for a period of time. It's where Isaac had dwelt. It's a location where God in times past had spoken to Abraham, spoken to his father, Isaac. It's a place where Jacob had dwelt for a period of time once before. So it's a significant spot. And it's kind of, as I said, kind of like the last stop off. You picture like the train stops as you're going. This is the last stop off before you transition out of Canaan and into Egypt. And as he gets there, it says that he pauses, apparently, and begins to offer sacrifices to the God of his father. So it's a significant place. And he's about to make this departure. He pauses, and he just spends some time in worship, which I think is a really wise thing to do, especially right before you make a major, major transition, to just bring your heart before the Lord, you know, in a sense, just spend time in worship, seeking the Lord's presence, and apparently, because of what we read in verse 2, there were some things that were going on in his heart that God saw and therefore God addressed to reassure him. Because verse 2 says, God spoke to him in visions of the night. So again, one of the ways God speaks to us, certainly today, I think one of the, the primary way he speaks to us is through his word. We have a written revelation, a finished canon of scripture that God's given to us that records for us very clearly the will of God in written form. Uh, but there are other ways the Bible does tell us that God can speak to us. God can speak to us through a dream. God can speak to us through a vision, which again, the vision basically is typically almost like a, a dream as you see things, but yet you're in an awakened state still, where a dream you're sleeping. But the important thing is, is that though God does speak to us in multiple ways, if God speaks to us or we believe, let me emphasize, God has spoken to us through a dream or through a vision, we should always bring that back to the word of God and make sure it's in alignment with scripture because God will never tell us to do something that's contradictory to his word. God would never tell us to do something that does not line up with what the written revelation of scripture tells us. But again, in this day, he doesn't have a portion of scripture. Here's someone who needs to have direction from God, and God meets him where he's at, speaks to him in this vision as he's spending time in worship there in Beersheba, and says to him, Jacob, Jacob, again, that repetition of name. Again, God knows his name, and that's comforting to me, to know that God knows our name and that God's almost trying to get his attention on a personal level. And we you know, see this kind of uh, repetitious thing with God speaking to people on time. Peter, Peter, you know, Mar Martha, Martha. We have these where God's trying to, you know, uh, hello here, I'm, I'm trying to talk to you directly. And the fact that God is loving enough and personal enough to condescend to us when we're struggling and when we're dealing with things, to me, is just a, a very encouraging thing. And he says to him, Jacob, Jacob, he gets his attention. Here I am, Lord. And the Lord says to him, I am God, the God of your father. And idea is being the God who does not change. He says, do not fear to go down to Egypt. Now, I have the word Egypt circled in my Bible there. Apparently, if God says don't fear to go down to Egypt, the implication to me is what? He's afraid to go down to Egypt. There's something about going to Egypt that makes him afraid. Now, part of that, as I said, could just be the natural dynamics of, man, that's scary to make a major transition. If you've ever made a major transition before, 
left everything and stepped into something that you think God's leading in, but you have absolutely no assurances. You're, you know, you're going to a foreign place, you know, moving and transit. I mean, that's, that's scary enough as it is. But for Jacob, remember, he, he's going to Egypt. His son has invited him to come. Certainly, as a father who hasn't seen his son for 22 years, he thinks his son's been dead. He's been robbed of a relationship with his son. You can talk about a very motivated father. If you haven't seen a child that you want to see for 22 years, can you imagine the motivation in his heart? So he's extremely motivated. He has the invitation and the offer of his son to come to take care of the family, to provide for them. Circumstances would seem to indicate that this is what the will of God is, that he should go. They're starving. They're struggling for survival. His son is the ruler of Egypt. He said, look, come, I'll provide for you. I'll put you in a fertile territory. I'll take care of you. There's five more years of famine and the family will survive. Everything circumstantially and in his heart and his thoughts and feelings would indicate this is what God is leading to do. So he starts to move in that direction, but he gets to Beersheba and he pauses. Because if he's anything like you and I, he also realizes, wait a minute. I've heard about this Egypt thing before. <laughs> my father Abraham, when there was a excuse my grandfather Abraham, when there was a famine one time before, he went down to Egypt. And when he went down to Egypt, he compromised there. And he made some mistakes, and this whole Hagar Ishmael thing happened that's caused problems in our family clan for quite some time, problems to this day still. And he's thinking, hmm. Could this really be God telling me to go to Egypt? Because when my grandfather went to Egypt, some major spiritual compromise happened, some moral mistakes took place, uh, and he really got out of the will of God. So wait a minute, and he stops in Beersheba, and he's thinking, I'm feeling a little uneasy about this go to Egypt thing. He knows as well his own father Isaac, at one point when there was a famine, started to go to Egypt, and thankfully, by the grace of God, God spoke to Isaac, his father, and said, Isaac, do not go down to Egypt. So Jacob understands, okay, twice before famine, my grandfather, he just flat out went to Egypt. He compromised, made mistakes, moral problems, spiritual catastrophe, consequences, not good. My father tried to go to Egypt God spoke to him strongly and said, do not go. I do not want you to go down to Egypt. And he's saying, now, and, and here I am on my way to Egypt, and, and I'm thinking this is God. Well, may, maybe I'm off base here because uh, I thought Egypt was like a uh, no-go there. I thought, no, 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 enter into Egypt or problemos take place when you go there. So maybe this really isn't God. Now, can you imagine the quandary? Circumstances seem like he should go. Everything in his heart is saying, absolutely, you should go. He wants to go. So here, But he's wrestling with thinking, but I don't know. Could that really be God? Because in the past, God said Egypt was off limits. And in the past, Egypt never worked out. But now it seems like God's leading me to go to Egypt. And, and because of that, he pauses, I believe, to seek incredible wisdom. Because sometimes we get in that quandary. Where it seems like God's leading, circumstances seem like God's indicating to do something. Maybe our desires are prompting us. There's an invitation. There's an open door. But yet there's a part of us that also realizes, but you know what? I'm not really sure if that will be God, though, because sometimes the, 
sometimes that seems like that may not be and we start to wrestle and you know what's the best thing to do in those situations is exactly what jacob does stop worship wait seek god wait for clear confirmation and we we have that fear come over us maybe this really isn't the lord maybe god's not really leading and that's why notice it says here that god says to him do not fear verse 3 go down to egypt i I see what you're concerned about and i appreciate your patience but he says look you don't have to fear i'm giving you the green light i'm telling you to go down to egypt your grandfather he shouldn't have went to egypt he should have stood he your father isaac i did tell him don't go to egypt but jacob i'm telling you to go down to egypt because i'm doing something different in your life this is a different season jacob This is a different situation. And just because I told two others no and because another tried it and made a mistake doesn't mean that if I have a plan for you to go there that you shouldn't follow what my direct and personal plan is for you. So he assures him not to be afraid. He says, look, I have a purpose, he's going to tell him, for you going down to Egypt. Go down to Egypt. What's God's purpose? I will make of you a great nation there. So God had a purpose for him to go to Egypt. There was no purpose for Abraham. It was just fear and lack of faith that made him step out of the will of God. Isaac had no purpose behind going there. God didn't, but he says, I have a purpose for you. And see, if God has a purpose for us to do something, the important thing to realize is, look, maybe other people have tried something and it's failed before. Because maybe that wasn't God's purpose and intention. But if God's telling you to do it and God's leading you to do it and he has a purpose for you to go, then go. The important thing is being obedient to the will of God and the plan of God for your own life. So he says, there, I'm going to make a great nation of you. Don't fear. Go to Egypt. I'll make of you a great nation. And he says, and I will go down with you to Egypt. I'm not going to abandon you. My purpose is in this. My presence will be with you, God says. I'm going to go with you. And I will surely bring you up again. Again, in other words, I'm going to fulfill my ultimate purpose. I'm going to bring you back to the promised land. I'm sending you there for a season to accomplish a purpose among the nation. And then God would bring them back. So God's saying, I'm not going to abandon my promises. I'm still going to fulfill my complete and ultimate plan. I'm going to bring the thing. He said, I'm going to bring it full circle. I'm going to send you to Egypt, make you a great nation. I'm going to build the nation there. And then 400 years later, God would bring them back. So he says, I'm going to bring you back. And he says, and Joseph, again, his son, who he cherished and wanted to go see, he will put his hand on your eyes. In other words, you, there's where you will die, and you will spend time with your son in your latter years there. And, and he's, God's giving him the assurance that he wants in his life. And you know what? How wonderful when the Lord does that. You know, Maybe you have recently been you know, wrestling and going through the mental gyrations and, and the fears and the apprehensions. You know, I encourage you, seek the Lord, wait on the Lord, and, and God will give the assurances. And sometimes we struggle. I don't know, you know, and God, if God's saying for you to go, my presence with you, my purpose is in it, then the important thing is walking out the will of God for your life personally. Don't look at the patterns of other people necessarily. We can learn from them. But God works uniquely in every life. And just because it, maybe something was not right in the past for someone else may not mean it may not be the proper right thing for you to do today presently. And maybe even if God said no to you in regards to something in the past, maybe God was just saying no, not then. But now it's yes. Now it's a green light. The important thing, again, is being current with the Lord 
and waiting for his word and his assurance in regards to these things. Verse 5, so Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel, says, carried their father Jacob and their little ones and their wives and the carts in which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. So they took their livestock, their goods, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and they went to, G to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants. Uh, verse 7 tells us his sons, sons, his daughters, uh, his son's daughter, excuse me, and all the descendants he brought with him to Egypt. And verse 8 begins to tell us these are the names of the children of Israel, Jacob and his sons who went to Egypt. And then it begins to record from verse 8 basically down uh, through verse 25 the names of the four uh, women uh, that gave birth to sons uh, of Jacob uh, as well as then some of the grandsons it includes in this list as well the children that were born by Leah and her handmaid and then uh, of course by you know Rachel and, and her handmaid and again I'm not going to torture you by reading down through these names if you want to read down through the names and uh, try and figure out how to pronounce them you're welcome to do that for uh, sake of uh, kindness to you, skip down with me if you would to verse 26. It tells us all the persons went with Jacob to Egypt who came from his body besides Jacob's son's wives were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two persons all the persons of the house of Jacob who went to Egypt were 70. So, again, as you calculate, you know, the sons, the grandsons, there are a few daughters mentioned in there. Mm -hmm. uh, it tells us here, when you factor in as well, Jacob, Joseph, the two sons that were born to Joseph, that 70 persons in all, the idea is indicating was the initial establishment of the nation of Israel when they went to Egypt. And again, remember, this is fulfilling a prophecy that God gave to Abraham a long time ago when he told them that for 400 years, remember all the way back in the time of Abraham, God spoke to Abraham and told him for 400 years he would be in a foreign land uh, and that they would dwell there for a period. This is God bringing about his word now to Abraham, sending Israel to Egypt. And Egypt, I know this sounds strange, was the perfect place for God to build the nation of Israel. And the reason why, you'll see as we move on very simply, is this, is the land of Canaan was filled with all types of wickedness and idolatry and pagan practices, and they welcomed embracing other nations and amalgamating other nations into what they were doing and marrying and intermarrying their sons and daughters and encouraged you to take on their practices and so forth which was been very dangerous to build the nation of Israel there because they could have potentially got caught into all those things and the line polluted and basically become amalgamated into the Canaanite peoples and practices. And the purity of the line would have been jeopardized and they would not have been preserved as a line and a people distinct as God's chosen race. Egypt, on the other hand, they were snobs. As you'll see when we read on, they were complete snobs. And because of their prejudice and their snobbery, they didn't want anything to do with other nations. They looked down upon anybody who wasn't an Egyptian. So you're not marrying our people. And you're not going to interact with us. You, you stay over there. You can dwell in our land, but don't think that you're going to get involved in our affairs, which was perfectly ideal 
for them to be in the land, to be cared for, and to be able to flourish and grow and develop with their own national identity and to be separated, and God kept them preserved and well cared for. So God in his wisdom sends 70 of them down there 400 years later when they leave under the leadership of Moses. That nation has grown to approximately somewhere between two to two and a half million people in a time of 400 years. Now, keep in mind the astonishing thing is it took God a few hundred years to produce an initial 70 people in that nation. And then in a matter of just a few hundred more years, God turned up the, uh, you know, the, the uh, f- what it is, you know, the horsepower, and you went from 70 to two and a half million. And again, it's, in some ways, it's just a subtle reminder that sometimes the works of God have a very slow, steady beginning. It took God a few hundred years to get it up to 70 people. And then at a certain point, when the conditions were right and they got to Egypt and the timing and the environment and everything was in the right place at the right time, then all of a sudden, ba-boom. In a matter of a few hundred years again, they went from 70 to two and a half million. So God began it slow. He established them. And then when he put them in the right place at the right time, then all of a sudden it flourished. And this same group of 70 ultimately becomes two and a half million in a matter of a few hundred years, just like the initial few hundred years. Verse 28 says, Then he sent Judah before him down to Joseph. So Judah kind of becomes the uh, sort of predominant son in the family now to take leadership. So Jacob sends his son Judah down to Joseph, kind of ahead of the family, notice, to point out before him the way to Goshen, and they came to the land of Goshen. So I like that. You know, again, Judah's name means praise. Ultimately, you know, Jesus comes from, he's from the line of the tribe of Judah. This is the line that Jesus himself comes from. And I like how here we see Judah going before them to point out the way before them to where they were ultimately to go in their destination. And I'm so thankful that Jesus himself, the lion of the tribe of Judah, doesn't just tell us where to go, but he actually goes before us and he actually points out the way to the place where we're supposed to go. And he just says to you and I, two words usually, follow me. You notice that typically that was something Jesus liked to say in the gospel, just follow me. Don't get ahead of me. Don't go somewhere and say, hey, Lord, will you follow us? And could you bless this, by the way? Jesus says, no, I'll go before you. Let me point out the way to where you're supposed to go, and you just follow me. You just let me stay ahead of you, navigate what we're doing, point out the way in which we're going to get to where we need to go, and you just follow me. That's your part. (laughs) Just follow me. And I like this. Judah goes before them. He, he kind of searches out ahead of them to Joseph. Hey, where is Goshen? Where is this place that we're supposed to settle that you told us about? And it says they came to the land of Goshen. And again, Goshen is a very fertile crescent there in the Nile Delta, about 900 square miles, a wonderful place to raise sheep and cattle and so forth. Verse 29, as the family arrives there, it says Joseph now made ready his chariot and went up to Goshen Take note of these words, don't overread them, to meet his father Israel. Can you imagine what that day was like for Joseph? 22 years, been waiting to see his father, who is basically assumed that he was good as dead. Their relationship breached 
22 years this reunion had been waiting between this parent and this child and and Jacob anticipating it as he gets there and Joseph getting dressed that morning getting ready preparing his chariot driving out to Goshen because Judah said okay the family's here pops and and brothers were all back we're in Goshen and Joseph now this again we we can only imagine the emotion the feelings the excitement he made ready his chariot, went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel and presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. I mean, that, that is just a, a good reunion there is what that is. You can just imagine the emotions and, you know, just the, the rejoicing in their hearts and the tears, just the embrace as they've been reunited. And again, you know, I look at these things and I think, man, that's just a faint picture of in some ways what we will all get to share in in some capacity and maybe it may be some wonderful reunions that happen in this life but to think of the fact that you know again maybe we have literally lost loved ones to the death process and and we some of us you know will wait 20 years 30 years longing longing for that day when in a sense we arrive to the destination where they're at and then the reunions that will take place to be able to wrap our arms around our loved ones to embrace them i'm sure again the bible says that god will wipe away every tear from our eyes you know i don't know exactly what that means but i don't think that's something that's for some reason there are going to be tears to wipe away it could be that part of those tears are just the excitement of the reunions of you know clinging to our loved ones and and the fact of being able to experience in time what we've longed for for all those years to be able to see the face and feel again that loved one that we've been separated from because of unfortunate things that happened on this earth uh, that you know leave us separated through the death process and here that just reuniting holding on to one another weeping and enjoying this reunion in verse 30 says israel then said to joseph now let me die no no, no pops <laughs> i just saw you not that quick but you know the idea now now let me die since i've seen your face because you're still alive the idea is just i can die in peace you know it's what his heart had been longing for you know the sense of and the idea there is i am completely satisfied i could die right now and that would be enough you know the satisfaction of a good long-awaited reunion you know i just i think it's going to be an incredibly satisfying thing as well when we see our loved ones face to face and just that sense of i'm at total peace now you know i just that sense of complete enjoyment he says i I could just die at this moment i'm so thankful to see your face and joseph said to his brothers verse 31 and to his father's household i will go up and tell pharaoh And say to him, my brothers and those of my father's house who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And they have come to me and the men are shepherds, notice, for their occupation has been to feed livestock. For they brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And so it shall be, he tells his brothers now, instruction. When Pharaoh calls you, this is what's going to happen. He says, I know exactly what's going to take place. He's going to say to you, what is your occupation? And you shall say to him in response, your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth till now, both we also our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen for every shepherd, he says, notice here it says, is an abomination to the Egyptians. 
So Joseph says, look, I'm going to go and speak to Pharaoh on your behalf. I'm going to go mediate with the one who sits upon the throne, much like Jesus mediates for you and I with the Father in heaven. He's our mediator, our intercessory, speaks on our behalf good things in regards to our position spiritually. And he says, I'm going to go tell them that you're here. I'm going to let them know that you're shepherds. And ultimately, it would be best for you to dwell over here in Goshen. Joseph already has the idea in his mind, but ultimately he realizes, I don't have final say, Pharaoh does. So he's a man of authority, but though he's a man of incredible authority, he's still a man who realizes that he is under authority. And that's critical, because nobody can have healthy authority and exercise it unless they always still realize that they are still under some form of authority. And Joseph says, you know what, I have all the power in the entire land, but there is still one authority over me, and that's the one who sits upon the throne. And so I need to, to, to confer with him, let him know you. I'm going to let him know your shepherds. As I said earlier, Egyptians, for whatever reason, culturally, and just sort of in prejudiceness, they despised shepherds. They just looked down upon those who did that occupation uh, as sort of like a low caste type people. So he says, I know what's going to happen. He's going to ask your occupation. And once he finds out you're shepherds, he's going to say, okay, that's fine. You can dwell in the land. You're Joseph's family. We love Joseph, what he's done for our country. Again, Joseph had prominence. And he's probably going to want to put you in the land of Goshen. So just tell him the truth. When he asks, he's going to realize, I can't put you then among the Egyptian people. It'd be good for you to be off in a rural area in Goshen where you might tend your flock. So again, I like this. Joseph tells them in advance exactly what's going to happen. He says, I know what's going to happen. You're going to be asked this question, and when you're asked this question, this is what you should respond. And it reminds me of Jesus. You know, Jesus knows ahead, and sometimes Jesus can give us insight and awareness. Look, this is probably what's going to happen. You're probably going to be asked this, and when you're asked this, or when the situation arises, this is what you should do, and this is what you should say. Again, remember Jesus... It tells us on one occasion, said, look, I'm going to bring you before judges and authorities. And don't worry when they ask you, because he says in that very hour, the Spirit of God will give you what you should say. And, and I think it's a wonderful thing. He tells them literally not only where to go, but he says, here's what's going to happen. And here's what you should say. He gives them instruction, even as he gives you and I instruction as he's leading us. Verse 47, look, it comes to pass. Excuse me, chapter 47. Joseph went and told Pharaoh and said, my father and brothers... Their flocks and their herds and all they possess have come from the land of Canaan. And indeed, they're in the land of Goshen. That's where they're at, he says. They're, they're right now waiting over in that territory. And he took five men from among his brothers. And what particular five men and why five? We don't know. He brought them and presented them to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to his brothers, lo and behold, hey, by the way, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, both we also and our fathers. Again, so wise. They're honest. They didn't try and say what they weren't, even though they knew that shepherds were looked down upon and despised. They didn't try and, in a sense, earn better graces by trying to act like they were something they were not. Even though they knew shepherds were looked down upon, it was a very humble existence they were just humbly honest, this is what we are. We're just shepherds. That's what we are. You know, we don't have some fancy resume. You know, we, we're just shepherds. That's what we are. And I think it's you know, wise of us. I think sometimes as believers, you know, we, we're intimidated to just admit who we really are. To just be honest. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Okay? 
And those people, I'm a Christian. I am. And I'm a born-again Christian. I'm a Bible-believing, born-again Christian. That, that's what I am. And, and to, to not be ashamed of who we really are and to feel like that we need to somehow gloss up our resume, that somehow that's going to make it more advantageous for us. Just be honest. Be who you are. Don't try and present yourself as something that you're not, whether it's representing yourself as a Christian and or even, again, just representing yourself for who you are. You know, don't make up some false identity and try and make yourself be something more than you Just humility, honesty. We, as your servants, are shepherds. And notice verse 4, God honors honesty. God honors humility. It says that they said to Pharaoh, we have come to dwell in the land because we have no pasture for our flocks and the famine is severe. In the land of Canaan. Now, therefore, please, the idea is, would you let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen? And Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, who no doubt was present with this meeting, and said, your father and your brothers have come to you. He's he's, he's happy for him because he's become a very prominent man in the land. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and brothers dwell in the best of the land and let them dwell in the land of of Goshen. There you go. Bingo. The exact land that would be good for them. A fertile crescent, great for herding and taking care of flocks, separated again from the rest of the Egyptian society. And as I said, a perfect place to be so that they would not get indoctrinated with the ways of Egypt. They'd be able to stay pure and preserved. Uh, And if you know, Pharaoh goes on to say, if you know any competent men among them, then make them chief herdsmen over my livestock. In other words, he says, and by the way, if any of these brothers of yours are as competent as you are, why don't you give them some government jobs and let them take care of my flocks? Because, uh, Joseph, the way that you've proved yourself around here, if you got any brothers like you, uh, your family seems to produce gems. So uh, not only can they dwell in Goshen, but uh, apparently Pharaoh had flocks himself. And he says, uh, if you know some competent guys... Uh, give them some chief go- jobs of the, you know, among the government to take care of some of our flocks. So again, God blesses their humility and their honesty. And Joseph brought his father to Jacob, and set him before, uh, excuse me, set him before Pharaoh. And notice verse seven: Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Now, that's very unique. Keep in mind here, the Bible says in Hebrews that. The the less or the lesser is always blessed by the greater. <clears throat> so here you have, again, Pharaoh of Egypt, the most powerful man in the world empire, all the wealth, all the riches, power and authority, the most successful man, in a sense, on the planet. And here you have this 130-year-old shepherd you know probably like you know like mr magoo you know he could, he could barely see and he he just comes walking up and he just he just introduces hey here's my here's my pop here this is this is jacob this this man who knew god but he was just a simple shepherd and it says that jacob just instantly he just like starts to pronounce a blessing over over pharaoh of all of Egypt, and he just starts to pronounce it. I just pray the Lord would bless you, and you know, t- thank you for taking care of my son, and I hope he blesses your flock. And he just starts to pronounce a blessing over him. And again, just an amazing thing to see, you know, as Jacob now is blessing Pharaoh. Again, the Bible says, again, which shows you God's estimation, 
that the lesser is always blessed by the greater. God's not impressed by power and riches and authority and titles and thrones. Uh, God saw that Jacob was a simple man, but he was a man of God. Uh, and God saw that as a much more important status than the things of the world often takes as status. Jacob is the one, this 130-year-old man blesses Pharaoh. And notice Pharaoh says to him, how old are you? <laughs> Again, because he comes up, he's, remember the Bible says he's half blind at this time. He's, you know, and he's, how old are you? He says to him. And Jacob said to him, the days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers, because his fathers, uh, his father and grandfather lived about 175 into 180, so he's only 130 in the days of their pilgrimage. So he says, look, I'm 130 years old. And interesting, verse 9, he describes his life. He says, few and evil have been the years of my life. 130 years. He's just few, but interesting, he uses the term few and evil evil that's the estimation and again the idea of evil there is not saying yeah i've been involved in a lot of wicked things that's not the idea of that he had lived an evil life the indication the term there in the hebrew is literally my days have been evil in the sense that they, they, they've been difficult they've been hard there have been a lot of hardships and a lot of difficulties and when you look at the life of jacob uh living in a fallen world with lots of evil prevalent and the family problems he had and the personal struggles he went through, this was he wasn't complaining. He was just giving an honest estimation. Yeah, you know what? Here's my estimation. Uh, it's 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 been short. It's gone by fast, but it's been really hard. It's been really hard. Life hasn't been easy. There's been a lot of hardships and a lot of difficulties and trials and disappointments. It's gone by quick, but boy, has it been a struggle along the way. And again. A man who knew God, but an honest estimation that life on this earth has its ills and its evils, and it's a difficult journey. So Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. And Joseph situated his father and his brothers, and he gave them possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And then Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with bread, according to the number of their families. So he situates them. He provides well for them. He honors his word. Again, what did Joseph say? Come down here, what? And he said, I will provide for you. And what's Joseph doing? They obeyed Joseph's word. They went to where Joseph told them to go. And what did Joseph do? Joseph provided for them. And the same thing with us. If the Lord says to you, Go here, if the Lord says to you, come here, and if you follow that and you obey me, I'll take care of you, I'll protect you, I'll provide for you, uh, we can guarantee the Lord will do that. And he has done that. I hope that you can testify of some time in your life where you have seen the Lord do that, when, that when you're in the center of his will, when you go where he tells you to go, when you do what he tells you to do, that he provides. You know, Paul says in Philippians, we'll see it soon on Sunday mornings, my God shall supply all of your need according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. They go down there. Joseph, it says, situates them. He provides for his family. He cares for them. And verse 13 says, there was no bread in all the land for the famine was very severe. So the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. 
And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. So he's now selling grain. This is the third year of the famine. He's now selling grain. He's taking money from the people to distribute grain, which is very interesting. He doesn't just give out grain for free. And I find this is an incredible administrator. And this is a wise man overseeing government. It's a difficult time, but notice he still lets people pay money and he charges a cost for them to receive even the food they needed for survival. And I think there's incredible wisdom in this. Because see, when something costs a person and there's some level, even of a small level, some level of sacrifice involved and not a free handout, People tend to have a greater stewardship and appreciation over what they're receiving, even if it's for their basic needs. So Joseph, it's a, it's a difficult time in, in, in that time. The economy was bad, but he says, no, you're going to pay for the grain still. Rather than it just being used up in a way very quickly because it wasn't taken care of in good stewardship, because they paid, they had a greater level of stewardship because when it costs you something – you manage something's different when it has a personal cost involved. So he begins to gather money for them. And then verse 15 says, So when the money failed in the land of Egypt, in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us bread, for why should we die in your presence? For the money has failed. And then Joseph said, again, it becomes a bartering thing. We'll give your livestock, he says, and I will give you bread for your livestock if the money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph. Joseph gave them bread in exchange for the horses and flocks and cattle and herds and donkeys. And he fed them with bread in exchange for all the livestock that year. In verse 18, this is the 15th year now, when the year had ended, they came to him the next year and said, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is gone. My Lord has our herds and livestock. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land, by us? So now they're saying in exchange, look, can we render some service? We've given you the money we had. Again, when times are hard, money begins to mean nothing in a time of a famine. You can have money, but you know, if times are tough, uh, things – so they, they then give their livestock. Now they're at the point where they say, you know what, look, we have nothing left. But we need to survive, so can we, can we give labor in exchange? Would you take our lands? Can we serve somehow? And can our service be in exchange for being provided for with food? It says, we will be servants of Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, and the land may not be desolate. In other words, we need to continue to keep planting at least. We're out of seed. And if not, we don't perpetuate the growing of crops Things will become more and more difficult in the nation. Verse 20 says, So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For every man of the Egyptians sold his field because the famine was severe upon them. So the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he moved them into the cities from one end of the borders of Egypt to the other. Now, keep in mind here. Joseph's not doing this for the sense of personal enrichment. You notice all the land, all the money, it's not going to Joseph. It's going to Pharaoh. So you can't point to Joseph and say, that's, that guy's abusing his authority. That's a wicked administrator. It's not. He's not getting enriched himself. This is good stewardship. 
This is wise administration and management. He now takes the land, in a sense, and lets them then become tenants of the land so that they can at least have some dignity still and still begin to survive as they're going through this time. Last few verses will end with this. As only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the rations allotted to them by Pharaoh... And Pharaoh gave them before they did not sell their lands. And Joseph said to the people, Indeed, I bought you and your land this day for Pharaoh. Look here, this is seed for you, you shall sow the land. And it came to pass in the harvest that you shall give one-fifth to Pharaoh. The idea is 20% to Pharaoh, to the government. Four-fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and for your food and your households as food for your little ones. And they said to him, notice, they weren't angry about this. They said, you have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt to that day, that is the day Moses wrote this, that Pharaoh should have one-fifth, or 20%, except for the land of the priests only, which did not become Pharaohs and Israel dwelt in the land and they multiplied exceedingly. But but take note here. Joseph ultimately brings things to a place where he says, look, this is what we'll do. You become tenants of the land. And he says, you work the land and of the, the increase that you make from the land, you give 20% to the government and you keep 80% for yourself to provide for your own households and for your families. Now, keep in mind, this was an incredible deal. They had no mortgage. They had no payments. It's basically a 20% straight tax across the board. And he's saying, look, you keep 80% for yourself. You give 20%. Again, they've had to give up everything because times were hard. But to keep 80% of the resources that came in was more than sufficient to take care of themselves. Again, they didn't have mortgages and other bills. All they needed to do was sustain themselves. The people celebrated and appreciated that. And it just showed Joseph's incredible administration. And, you know, as we look at this, you, you begin to realize, again, does, does God just care only about spiritual issues? No. He cares about the souls of men, but he does care about the social conditions of a society. And God shows me that he even cares about the affairs of what happens in governments and societies and civilizations, because here he puts a godly, wise man as an administrator in a situation where there's incredible economic crisis and problems, and he sets that man in that place. Hey, great that the Lord uses us to preach the gospel and to save souls, but you know what? God has also given to us as Christians with the word of God and the spirit of God an incredible level of wisdom and understanding at times that could be incredibly helpful as an asset to do business good, to do government good. And God can use us in lots of different places. The key for us is to realize, Lord, where would you use me and how? And how can I just be a blessing in my society and a blessing in my community? God was using Joseph in that way in a very clear manner.